So let's uh, open up Google here on your device. On my phone? Yeah. What's the uh, first tab you have there? Do you have it yeah. ready? Yeah, it's Best Ramen Berkeley. Which, by the way, if we have any listeners who know, because Google and Yelp don't come up with any like really highly rated ramen in Berkeley, so please. Or even just, like I'll extend it, the East Bay. Oh, there's Somebody definitely got to be someone out there who can help you. All right, let me uh, pull up my phone here. My last Google search was actually from a week ago, last Friday, if you can believe that. It was in a bar, uh, and it was for what does Russell Simmons look like? I was confusing Chuck D for Russell Simmons. Perhaps a, <laughs> an unforgivable mistake to hip-hop loyalists. I did lose a bet. Uh, with that, I guess we should start. And we're actually not that off topic, because in this episode, we're talking about Google. And this is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, GTM's editor-in-chief, with Shale Khan, my co-host, the head of GTM Research and our senior vice president. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. It's uh, been over a decade since Google dipped its toes into the energy waters, first installing a 1.6 megawatt solar system at its Mountain View campus, which was a huge installation at the time, and then announcing a wide-ranging investment initiative called RE Less Than C, designed to make renewables cheaper than coal. It has uh, since dabbled in pretty much everything. Power electronics, home energy analytics, smart thermostats, renewable energy tax equity, residential geothermal, flying wind, solar lead generation, and autonomous cars, uh, plus other things. It's hard to say exactly what Google's strategy is, though. Google is a much bigger, far more diverse company than it was in 2006. It's reinvented news, advertising, mapping, browsing, and consumer electronics. But in energy, a sector so dramatically different from those other areas, it hasn't had the impact it imagined 10 years ago. So we're going to explore and debate a bit about Google's experience in energy. And just as an aside, I know the parent company is now Alphabet, which owns the subsidiary Google and the X arm that's currently active in energy. But we're just going to make things simple and call the company Google throughout the show. Anyway, whatever name we use, I would argue it's it's hard to call the company's foray into energy a success, at least stacked up to its goal of 10xing innovation in all sorts of areas. And Shale, I know you disagree with me on the impact there. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, I, I don't know whether Google has achieved what it set out to do in 2007 when it started that RE less than C initiative. But regardless of what they set out to do, I think you can make a, a pretty strong case that Google has been one of, if not arguably the most important company in the energy transformation for the past decade. All right. So make your case. Okay. So imagine that it's 2007 and you're Google um, and you're huge and you have a lot of money and you have expertise in selling ads to people and search and you want, you think climate change is a really serious global concern and you want to do something about it as best you can, what do you do? Well, if you are taking it really seriously, you do everything that you possibly can. And so in Google's case, let's just, you mentioned some of these kind of quickly, but let me just run you through the wide array of things that Google has done within this sector. They've been They've done R&D. Um, it's been reported recently that they're looking at things like molten salt storage. Uh, they've looked at novel PV applications. They've done all sorts of things on the R&D side through Google X. They have invested in different generating technologies. They were big in CSP early. Um, they've done floating wind through Makani. They now 
are spinning out this company, Dandelion, which does home geothermal. They've done energy management. They had their own power meter business, which was sort of a home energy management systems thing that didn't work out so well. And so they bought Nest for $3.2 billion. They've done grid technology, um, or at least looked at grid edge type innovations. They do customer acquisition and software. They have Project Sunroof, which is a residential solar customer acquisition play. They do power trading um, through their Google energy business that they've picked up. They've been an investor. They are one of the few largest tax equity investors and among the relatively few corporate tax equity investors. So those who have been providing tax equity capital who are not banks. So they've been a key source of capital both to centralized renewable energy and to distributed renewable energy um, in the U.S. They have been the at the forefront of corporate procurement for renewables. They've got two, I think, two and a half gigawatts that they've already procured. They were a pioneer in many of these new structures for corporate procurement. They also are the first company that has come out and publicly said, and we talked about this with, with Hervé Tuati a few weeks ago, that they want to not just match 100% of their load with the equivalent volume of renewable energy, but they want to match it on a time basis, which is really ambitious and new. But even setting that aside, they're going to hit their 100% sort of volume matching in 2017 um, globally. So as far as I can tell, oh, and I'm sorry, I'm missing things. They're a part of Mission Innovation, um, which is this multinational sort of cooperative effort to invest in early stage innovation in energy technology. It's been reported that they've spent millions of dollars in government lobbying at various times in the U.S. to support policy that uh, is sort of progressive on, on clean energy. So as far as I can tell, if you were to like look across the value chain of these sectors, the only thing I don't think that they've done, and somebody may correct me, is like actually develop projects and be an EPC like can be a construction firm. But setting that aside, they've done all of that. And they've done all of that within the course of a decade, right? The RE less than C initiative, like you said, started in 2007. So has every one of these things been successful? Certainly not. But if you treat Google seriously in, in its ambitions to combat global climate change, I don't know what more they could have done. Yeah, what you say is absolutely true. Google's got this long, rich history investing in a wide range of energy technologies. And, you know, one of the most profitable, successful companies in modern business investing this much in renewables and climate solutions should be celebrated. But but with that said, the company, you know, seems to be operating from some level of hubris. You know, Page and Bryn have this... 10x strategy like they think that if they if they tackle a particular industry or technology they should be able to accelerate that technology 10 times faster and make it 10 times better than anything else on the market and what they've realized is that they can't do that in energy so when you go through the litany of investments that they've made over the years that you just identified mostly what you find is that they thought they could accelerate innovation and um Many companies had tried before them, and they ran into many of the same limits. In 2007, when they invested in Alter Rock and Potter Drilling in Enhanced Geothermal, uh, they found that you know en Enhanced Geothermal was just a ludicrously difficult and capital-intensive industry, and still no one has figured it out. Same thing with CSP. PV ultimately just destroyed the economics of CSP. Google is still an investor in the Ivanpah project. It holds an equity stake there. Um, 
but I've heard that they don't really even have much interest in the project. I mean, I think they just earn their returns and, and that's it. They don't have any interest in learning more about CSP or developing future projects. Google was a big investor in early home energy suites and they, along with everyone else, realized how hard consumer energy management would be. So then later in 2014, Google makes another play in home energy um, and, and the smart home broadly by acquiring Nest for $3.2 billion. And Nest has since struggled to define itself under the company. It's becoming far less clear where the company is headed. Um, you know, we don't even know what that play was exactly. And, and now Google's kind of throwing its wait behind Google Home to compete with Amazon's Alexa, and perhaps maybe there'll be some integration there. After all of that, pretty much the biggest impact is Google's voracious appetite for conventional wind and solar. In 2011, a couple of engineers who were involved in the RE Less Than C initiative basically said that Google stopped their investments because conventional renewables weren't enough to combat climate change. And so now the very technologies that engineers were decrying as not enough are central to Google's strategy. And again, this isn't a criticism of Google. It's just that the company seems to be having the greatest impact precisely where it says we don't need to focus. Right. But like, I don't, I don't agree with that characterization of, first of all, in, they didn't stop investing in that stuff in 2011. They, they did stop, I think, investing in R&D on wind and solar in 2011. But even since then, now in that Bloomberg reporting, it was talked about that there was, they were looking at and eventually discarded new novel solar applications, um, that would combine solar with water harvesting. You know, obviously they haven't been universally successful, but they've tried basically everything. I mean, you know, we, we've talked before, uh, about this debate that seems to be ever raging between people who believe in innovation and people who believe in deployment. And then most everybody who gets into that debate says at the end, well, of course, we all agree that there should be both. Like, where is there a better living, breathing example of a company that has invested seriously in both innovation and in deployment than Google? On the innovation side, they've, you know, had fits and starts, but They've tried repeatedly and continue to try. Google X continues to invest in this stuff and deployment throughout, both for procurement for their own purposes and as an investor um, in other assets. I mean, I think the you mentioned that they have this 10x philosophy, right? But I think that that is specific to Google X. So one of the challenges is if you get stuck inside Google X, their moonshot program, then you're supposed to be developing technology that will disrupt a market or be earth shattering or again, be 10 X better than whatever else there is out there. And I agree with you, like that's not coming in the near term for energy. So the only way you do something 10 X better, if at all, is you have a really, really long time horizon. It's not clear yet whether Google X is willing to have a 10 or 20 year time horizon for these technologies that it's developing. But again, that's like one specific part of a much broader portfolio that I think when you look at in its entirety is pretty impressive. Okay, so uh, maybe I should be a little bit more clear about what I'm arguing here. What you seem to be saying is that we should be giving Google credit for being a significant player in this space, no matter the track record. And I guess I'm mostly on the same page with that. It's not easy to get money at an early stage as a clean tech startup, and Google has attempted to fill the gap a bit. But that's different from looking at its very specific track record, which has arguably not been 
successful, as I tried to outline. Aside from, you know, they're very successful in industry-leading corporate procurement stuff, almost every single investment in energy hasn't panned out. And I guess that's fine. It's a hard industry. But I'm trying to hold Google to a slightly different standard. This is a company that's made sweeping claims in the past about revolutionizing energy and assumed wrongly that you could just apply the Google 10x innovation philosophy to the market. I had this conversation with Mark Bergen, actually. He's a Bloomberg reporter who covers Google as his beat full-time. He's written a few stories recently on X's energy moonshot investments and wrote a particularly insightful piece on Makani Wind, the floating wind energy company that Google acquired a few years ago. And what struggles would that project say about Google's evolving approach? I caught up with Bergen by phone in the busy Bloomberg newsroom, so you'll hear a little bit of uh, background noise, busy journalists talking on the phone. And I asked him how energy fits into the secretive X portfolio. Yeah, so right now um, there is a, t- a small team that's working on climate change uh, and, and something called the foundry. So there's like X has three different stages. Um, one is these initial where they kind of have these initial ideas that are hatched either from research papers or engineers on the team. Uh, and if they kind of get up enough support and have a product that's something where it could actually be feasible, they move into this stage called the foundry, which is sort of an incubator to push it out into a, a full blown what they call projects. So the projects are, uh, at this point, there's Loon, which is Internet Balloon. Uh, there's Wings, a drone delivery program. Uh, they have Makani, the energy kite. Um, and the self-driving car was once a, a project, and now it's its own company. Uh, so there's a bunch of things in the foundry, some of which we know, a lot of which we don't. Um, and there are several of those, from, from what I understand, are, are devoted uh, to energy. In, you know, what we get the sense is maybe from in years past, they were working on, on maybe energy generation. And now they've moved to things like transportation and storage. So you wrote this piece on Makani Wind, the kite-based wind company that Google acquired back in 2013. It became a part of X. But according to your sources, it's it's kind of faltered since then. It's been unable to compete with conventional wind, unable to find customers, and shed a bunch of employees. What what did you hear about the state of the company? A, a former executive told me that it's kind of a shell of what, what it once was. I think... Um, my understanding is that they've also kind of scaled down a bit, um, you, you know, and but they are focusing more on trying to get the out to market and trying to get connected with the utility and trying to get actually plugged on the grid. Uh, I've heard two different things, competing things that, that as far as even like at some point Al- Alphabet was looking to, to sell off Makani. It doesn't seem like that's the case. I, my, my hunch is that the, the objective here is to spin it out into its own company outside of Alphabet. So one of the co-founders of Makani told you that Google is doing this, um, quote, out of arrogance, not expertise. It's the triumph of novelty over rigor, end quote, referring to the company's strategy. What exactly did he mean by that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the point here, and, and this is probably a lot of maybe Google's initial approach to energy. Um, you know, I heard this anecdote about the first time that this before they bought Makani, um, but when Google had funded them, they they kind of brought in some search engineers, um, and that were that had you know no experience with any of the, um, the hard problems with engineering uh, or anything around kind of green tech. Uh, and it's been you know this is around the same time. This is almost a decade ago when Google was first getting into self-driving cars and healthcare, uh, and had a lot of people describe the sort of there was a hubris in their approach. Um, they sort of had this idea that they could apply tech to any type of market 
um, and, and kind of upend it. Uh, I do think that's changed a bit. You know, you've seen things like Google Fiber, for instance, where, where at one point they had this ambitious plan to come out and overhaul the entire broadband and cable industry. Uh, and they pulled back on that a lot. The, the sort of one rationale I've heard from that is Google's just not interested and good at digging up backyards. Um, and, and I think in a similar way, I think with energy, like they're, they're not experienced with a lot of the um, regulatory issues that the energy market has uh, with a lot of the hardware and engineering issues. Um, I did hear people talk about you know, they had a bigger project around a smart grid. And, and one of the reasons that failed, someone told me, it was just because they just didn't have enough uh, experience and expertise. And that's something we've been debating for some time. You know, how deep into the energy space will Google want to get? And how much risk is it willing to take on expensive energy technologies that will literally take decades to get to market potentially? So you mentioned their philosophy. They want to see a 10x acceleration of innovation in any type of technology they're pursuing. It's so difficult in hard goods or, or construction like energy, which is a pretty calcified market. What else can you tell me about that, how that philosophy is applied to energy internally? Are there competing visions about where and how to invest? Yeah, I think, I mean, one thing that's, that's interesting to me is the tension between, you know, this idea that, that X is sort of, um, their existence is to back projects that would otherwise not, not exist, right? So projects that, that no venture capitalists would invest in, uh, no private equity firm, just because the, it, the, both the payoffs are uncertain and the timeline is way too long. Uh, that's sort of been the, the model they've been talking about for years, right? And so they are arguing, you know, like no one would have invested in self-driving cars 10 years ago. And now because they've poured billions into this um, problem, they're arguably out in front, at least as far as um, developing a driverless car. Uh, I think with energy, there, there's the sense that maybe they took that approach uh, of, you know, these projects unless we have to make them moonshots, we have to make them so significant um, and, and, you know, they didn't, they passed on maybe smaller projects. Like, uh, for example, you know, um, Saul Griffith, who now runs Other Lab, who's a Makani founder, has worked on HVAC technology and, and this fairly simple niche where the market is not tremendous and yet um, you can kind of create a sustainable company out of it. It's not as sort of sexy, like grabbing the headlines moonshot idea as maybe driverless cars or, or internet balloons. Um, I think an interesting project is Dandelion, which is which just spun out of Alphabet last month. So that was a project to do um, affordable geothermal heating and cooling. And they developed this this drilling technology. Um, from what I understand, there are two people that are at, that left X to start that company. Uh, it's you know it's a I I don't know I haven't actually talked to anyone involved with the tech, but. Um, it seems like a pretty plausible market. They're out in um, upstate New York getting customers. Um, it's not it's not an example of sort of a, a big project that would become a standalone alphabet company. It begs this bigger, uh, if not simpler question, which is what is a moonshot for energy at Google? Is it something that's a little closer to commercialization than maybe some other areas that offer faster paths to scale? You know, it's interesting. We left this out of our story, but um, we met with Astro Teller, who's the um, his official title of Captain of Moonshots uh, at X. Um, he drew these concentric circles on the wall, um, talking about what he saw as sort of the the market for like to decarbonize the grid and and to address climate change. Um, at the center was um, producing energy, energy generation, 
uh, out expanding out that is um, energy moving it transportation and and see like storage counts as sort of moving it through time um, and then the bigger circle was use and he said something like you know if someone could solve a, uh, could find a way to produce concrete in a much more energy efficient way you could you know it's basically the equivalent of like taking the entire United Kingdom off the grid uh, so I, I mean I don't we didn't follow up and say well would you you know come out with a moonshot project or on concrete i mean I, I think that may be the tension there where that could have this this really big market impact um but but it just doesn't fit in the mold uh, of of what google has done historically um but i think they you know they, they also frame it they think of driverless cars they think of drone transportation they, that, that eventually having uh an impact on climate change right like that the driverless cars will reduce the inefficiencies on the road and that you know, you won't throw out your spoiled milk anymore because a drone could just deliver the exact amount that you need. Um, so I think some of this is very optimistic vision of the future uh, that the company always has and, and sort of what, what makes them unique. My sense is they're still really grappling with um, how to how to approach this market. Um, it's not, you know, the energy team, as far as I can tell, is still pretty small compared to, say, how many engineers they have working on driverless cars. Or probably around robotics, or um, some of the other areas where they've put a lot of focus. Um, I think another interesting thing on on energy is um, DeepMind, which you didn't mention the story. Is their AI lab out of London um, that has done some work that they've been public about about um, using advanced machine learning to um, improve the energy efficiency of of data centers. And and there's this idea that maybe if they could apply that to the, the grid, um, that could have a pretty big impact. And that seems to hit, you know, that's where that's AI, that's software, um, it's data, it's, that's kind of all the strength that Google has. Again, Mark Bergen is a reporter at Bloomberg covering Google, and he mentioned one of the ex-startup spinoffs, Dandelion. We're going to hear from Dandelion CEO Kathy Hannon a bit later. Hannon worked at X for three years evaluating R&D opportunities. So I'm not arguing that Google should dial back its investment necessarily. I'm merely pointing out that it hasn't lived up to its expectations and claims about accelerating progress. They are realizing firsthand the realities of energy. The next question, I guess, Shale, is should they be doing anything differently? Well, I have one idea. Um, This is my Google, if you're out there, this is my free idea for you, Um, though it won't be free when you do it. Buy a utility. All right, so here's the case. Um, there's been talk for years about you know the utility business model is being disrupted by distributed energy and all this kind of stuff. And there have even been some discussions of takeover attempts. I mean, if you haven't read it, the saga of Eric Wessoff, our dearly departed editor-in-chief, trying to buy Hiko, the Hawaiian utility, is a fascinating read. But it's actually never happened, as far as I can tell. There's this other company, 21st Century Utilities, which I think was supposed to acquire a utility and sort of turn it into this 21st century, innovative, clean enterprise. Nobody's done this yet. Right. And so every utility remains owned by a utility holding company or something like that. Google has the cash. It can acquire utilities. Some of them probably it can get on the cheap. Um, utilities have just an endless volume of data that can be leveraged and who better to figure out how to manage it than, than Google as opposed to the utilities, which are, you know, sort of starting from their old stodgy, um, 
infrastructure world. And Google is heavily involved in autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles. So if all this stuff becomes electric, there's all sorts of opportunity for fleet management. You can do blockchain applications. Like all this stuff seems right up Google's alley. It should buy a utility and use it as the testing bed for all the things that it wants to be doing on climate change. Interesting. So what kind of utility do you think they should buy to create this testing ground an investor-owned utility uh, or a municipal utility, like two very different choices. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, so a municipal utility would make sense from the perspective of, you know, you get stuff done at the smaller scale. But the challenge with that is um, they're nonprofit organizations. They report to a municipal board. So I'm not sure that would work for Google. I'm not sure they can buy a, a nonprofit municipal utility. But, you know, an investor-owned utility, maybe a smaller investor-owned utility in a location that that has reasonably progressive regulators, because obviously these are still going to be regulated entities, um, that perhaps is under threat from increasing proliferation of non-utility owned generation. So I don't know specifically what that looks like, but they're certainly out there. I guess the question I have is why Google would want to buy the poles and wires when it could effectively create a virtual utility by taking some of its existing businesses and skills, like threading data through smart, smart thermostats, autonomous EVs, Google Home, etc. I guess they could thread them all together in theory anyway. Compl- still complicated, but you don't have to invest in the poles and wires. I just, I also can't imagine they'd like all the regulation. Yeah, I, it's true. You can get a, a certain distance by doing all that kind of stuff. But I think, you know, isn't the broader trend, like the, all these big software companies are working on the first of all they're developing hardware which they didn't always do before you know google makes phones now um but they're also figuring out the link between the physical world and the the non-physical world and and there's just a ton of that ripe for innovation in electricity you know if you don't own the lines and wires if you're not the the network manager then you're limited in how much you can do ultimately you are selling to the network manager you're selling to the iso or something like that so you just end up with a lot more control if you own the lines and wires as well again you know it's highly regulated so that's a that's a challenge that google would have to face but one way or another it seems to me like if you want to be really ambitious, which is, I think, what we're proposing here, um, somebody at some point needs to take over a utility and attempt a true dramatic transformation. I think I see it differently. I guess I hadn't really toyed with the idea of Google buying a utility, so I probably need to chew on that a little bit more. But I think they should stick to their core strength, and that's taking data, figuring out ways to let companies build services on top of it. It has the best software engineers in the world, and they're all working on like mapping, publishing, categorizing data. It should use those skills and help build analytics and visualization tools, grow offerings like Project Sunroof, for example, which I've actually heard is a pretty valuable tool for gathering residential rooftop solar leads thus far. They're a platform, and they should see themselves in the same way, to be a platform for clean tech businesses or utilities for that matter, and help them solve problems through better use of information. Uh, well, I'm not done I'm not done making my case for buying a utility because you mentioned that where they've been successful is building sort of platforms for others to develop applications on top of. Isn't that exactly what the vision of Rev was in New York and to some extent the vision of the the future of the utilities in California? It's to turn the utility into a platform business. And 
you know, we're struggling to get that done for many reasons in New York. But one of them, I think, is that the utilities have really no idea how to become platform businesses. So why not let a platform business, especially a software platform business that can handle large volumes of data, like come in and reinvent it themselves? Yeah, I guess I'm still left wondering why Google would want to get into such a highly regulated business. Yeah, I feel like if not Google, somebody still needs to do it. You know, it's just it just hasn't happened yet. And I've heard it discussed, you know, dozens of times over the years. Um, and in some some there's some utilities where, you know, they it's not like they have to get acquired for this to happen. They can try to transform themselves, to be fair. But uh, but it just, you know, there hasn't been a you know, there's been all this utility M&A amongst utility holding companies like they all acquire each other. NextEra keeps trying to buy utilities and failing like let's let somebody else give it a shot. I mean, if Amazon can buy Whole Foods, <laughs> I don't see why this is crazy. <laughs> totally fair point. I'm going to sit on that one for a bit. And if uh, our listeners have any opinion on whether this is a realistic approach for Google, hit us up on Twitter. Um, I want to hear from someone else now who worked at X for a few years. Her name's Kathy Hannon. She didn't tell me whether Google is planning to buy a utility or not, but she did shed a bit more light on how investments are considered within the Moonshot Factory. Hannon is the CEO of Dandelion, a ground-sourced geothermal company that was started at X. Her co-founder is James Quasi, who is the former senior director of energy efficiency services at SolarCity. And I spoke to her for a while about Dandelion's approach to geothermal, which mirrors some innovations from rooftop solar that was actually helped by Google X's project Sunroof um, while she was there. She also shed a little bit more light on the broader operations at X. When I was working at X, um, Alphabet's R&D lab, as a product manager, my job was to find new opportunities for X to explore, and I tended to focus on energy. So because I was just always on the lookout for new opportunities, I was on this list at Google called Energy-Discuss. This really long email came through to Energy-Discuss one day from a gentleman named Bob Wyman who was at that time a software engineer in New York, all about why geothermal heat pumps were the number one thing that we should focus on in order to have an impact on climate change. And, you know, it was like literally my job to find the things we should focus on to have an impact on climate change. So I just braced myself and read this very long um, email and and I, it turned into a correspondence with Bob that lasted for a few months. And over time, he really won me over to his perspective. Heating is the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions. And right now, there's not a great solution to the problem. And what's so interesting about the potential of geothermal heat pumps is that they are so much less expensive than the status quo of fuel oil or propane or electric resistance. So it's one of these big opportunities where there's actually the economics from an operating cost basis, and that's important, but from an operating cost basis, the economics are great. So there's one, it boils down to this one problem of upfront capital costs. And in that email, Bob was really advocating for third-party ownership and financing and these financial ways of reducing that upfront capital cost. And at X, some of the work we did could, it added to that by also looking at, you know, in addition to the business model, what are some technologies we could bring to play to decrease that upfront capital cost? So there are a few unique pieces of your business model. You mentioned that financing is really important in order to reduce 
or eliminate the upfront cost and spread it out over time. You are working on using software for better customer acquisition and identifying the most appropriate customers to reduce lead times. And of course, you're working on developing a new sonic drilling head. Um, let's talk about the drilling process first. Uh, why is it so expensive to drill uh, a well for a geothermal heat pump? And what are you? how does this sonic drilling head potentially solve the problem? It's so expensive to drill for geothermal today, mostly just because of the supply and demand economics of drilling. So if you're a driller and you have lots of expensive equipment and a certain number of jobs a year, then you have to amortize your overhead against those jobs. And for almost all of the drillers doing geothermal today, their normal job that they would do is drill a well. So these are just like gigantic drilling rigs that you don't need. That's right. They're not designed for geothermal. They're designed for wells. And so when we were approaching this problem of what would drilling look like for geothermal specifically, it started as just a list of requirements and constraints they included things like, you know, the ability to maneuver the drill easily in a typical residential yard and the ability to not make a huge mess and the ability to get the wells drilled in one day or less than a day. And, and how is the drilling evolution going? Have you achieved what you wanted to by this point? While we were still at X, we prototyped the version of the drill that we built for unconsolidated soil, so that's places without rock. And we tested that in Louisiana. And we were able to drill a hole, put the loop in, and grout the hole in 40 minutes. So that was a major achievement because 40 minutes, if you can do it in 40 minutes, that's like um, almost reducing the barrier altogether. And that was really exciting. Again, like that was unconsolidated, so by all means, easier conditions than you would find in um, places with a lot of rock, but it was still a very exciting milestone for us. Then we decided to go to market in upstate New York for our first customers, about 15 jobs. We have plans to install about 40 this year, and we'll begin those installations in mid-September. So you're pulling together financing. You have tested and have so far seen early success with your drilling technology. And you're also using software for better customer acquisition to be able to target opportunities, cut the customer acquisition cost. And your CTO, your business partner, James Quasi, is uh, the former senior director of energy efficiency services at Solar City. And he went over there um, after founding a company called Building Solutions, uh, an efficiency analytics company. And, uh, you know, his role was identifying efficiency opportunities in residential homes while at Solar City. Uh, so, how are you applying his experience to the customer acquisition piece of Dandelion's business model? There have been several ways, but one was just in terms of deciding where to go to market first. We really used our data on um, homes and the amount of money they're spending on heating and cooling today and how much they could save by switching and found that just because there are so many homes in upstate New York using fuel oil, using propane, it's a cold climate, so you actually do need to heat quite a bit. 
And many of these homes don't have access to natural gas. So you just get these very high-density um, clusters of homes spending a lot of money on heating and cooling. Um, and it really helps us really prioritize which towns to go after and even within those towns, what neighborhoods. So um, working under the X roof, did Google give you any particular like analytical capabilities to help build out those predictive analytics and that customer acquisition piece? We certainly did have the benefit of getting to know the Sunroof team that has created maps that predict solar availability across the United States. We worked with some of the geo teams at Google that um, have, you know, a lot of capabilities around using mapping tools and tools in Google Earth to see how we could leverage those tools for this problem. We've worked with the cloud team on some of our resources for crunching all that data. So I, I do think that being part of Google was very helpful in drawing on a lot of different resources across the co company to achieve the models that we achieved. Are there any particular qualities about what Google offers? Um, is it easier to develop so like software-based approaches under X, or is it do they have the same sort of resources devoted to hardware? Certainly, if you look at the people at Google as a company, it's very clear that the software resources and the software expertise is the company's focus. And so just from a sheer numbers perspective, there are so much, so many resources and so much expertise around software. But the unique and I think compelling thing about X is that they're really building up a very high level of expertise and experience in many different hardware disciplines as well. We did have the benefit of getting to work with very talented mechanical engineers, electrical engineers. Um, and also like when there wasn't somebody specifically knowledgeable about an area, it was always very easy to go out and identify that expert in industry or in research who we could bring in to collaborate with us as well. How much attention is there under X on energy and climate? Can you give us a sense for like where energy fits into that broader picture? It's such a hard question. The self-driving car is X's most famous project, arguably, and um, autonomous vehicles will probably have as big an impact in energy as anything Alphabet has done, but it, it never... Um, positions that project as an energy project. It's it's a mobility project or a transportation project. It's just now you see like all of the ride-sharing companies investing in autonomous vehicles and it, it feels like it will be inevitable and we'll have these very intelligent networks of autonomous vehicles that can charge when they want to and they'll be elect it will be easier to electrify them and then eventually coordinate them with the grid. Um, to optimize that system as well. So it's very exciting. And I think there's like so much potential there. And yet, is it really an energy project? I don't know. It can be very hard to know which projects will end up being the ones that have the biggest impact. How did you approach the geothermal op opportunity under the roof of X? Was there anything unique about the structure of X or what you were able to do to approach that project that caused you to tackle it in a unique way? I think it would have been very hard to start that project without X. And the reason I say that is that it was not clear at the beginning 
if it was a good opportunity or how possible it would be to get the costs to where we needed them to be, how possible that drilling problem, how tractable that drilling problem would be. Um, there's just so much analysis that needed to be done in order to even understand, is this problem worth pursuing and how should one go about pursuing it? And those problems were not inexpensive to answer. So for example, building a drilling prototype and then testing it in Louisiana, it's a pretty involved exercise. I can't imagine like what it would have been like to try to raise money to do that before we had any proof points at all, you know, when it was just an idea. So I, I do think that Dandelion needed a place like X in order to get started. Again, that was Kathy Hannon, the CEO of Dandelion. And this conversation with her got me thinking about a bigger question, one that I brought up with Mark Bergen. Is a moonshot in energy different given the uniqueness of the market? And is Google the appropriate vessel for early stage R&D? What do you think, Shale? Well, you know, the the reason we have things like mission innovation and, you know, the other ver example, prominent example of somebody going after moonshots is the Breakthrough Energy Coalition, which Bill Gates pulled together and now Breakthrough Energy Ventures, the, the venture arm of that, which is also supposed to be investing in basically moonshot initiatives in energy. The case for it is that you, you need both, right? So it, it has to do, we've talked about this so many times on this, this show because it keeps coming up in different ways, which is like, you can iterate on existing technology and figure out better deployment models and financing models and regulatory models. And you can, you can get to an order of magnitude better than we are today, whether you're looking at penetration of renewable energy or reduction in carbon emissions, you can, you can do all that. Everybody, seems to agree that you can get that far that doesn't get you the rest of the way right which is the sort of how do you get to fully decarbonized economy how do you get to a two degree climate target and even the people who think that you can do it with sort of existing technology need it to be really scaled up in a way that hasn't happened before so you could argue there's a moonshot in that as well and there's still going to be a need for something that is way cheaper or different form factor or decarbonizes a sector of the economy that everything else doesn't like agriculture or industrial emissions or whatever it might be. So there's, you know, there's gotta be room for that. Is Google the right one to do it? I don't know, but I'm perfectly happy to have him try. I think that's an appropriate note to end on. I'm happy to have him try too. They certainly have enough cash, but 11 years on from Google's initial foray into energy, we still haven't witnessed any groundbreaking results, which probably says more about how insanely hard this market is to crack than it says about whether Google is doing it right. So what do you think, uh, Shale? Can we leave it at that? I, I, I do. I do. I don't see these failures as indicative of uh, hubris. And I don't, I don't think that, I mean, I, I, I believe the idea that Google thought um, to the extent that a corporation can think, I guess that's up to the Supreme Court. That, that they thought they could make more headway than they have, but I don't fault them for that. A lot of people thought that, and you know, Elon Musk be, may be the only one who can actually do it. Okay, we'll call it at that. Shale Khan is GTM's senior vice president. Always an enjoyable conversation. Likewise. You can contact us with your thoughts on Google or anything else for that matter at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Oh, tweet at me at Shale Khan if you know good ramen places in the East Bay. <laughs> yes, indeed. Or tweet at us. We're easy to find on Twitter. 
Let us know what you think. And please, 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 if you like this show, pass on the word. Send a link via social media. Send an email to a friend or colleague. Or better yet, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Um, word of mouth is really important for spreading the uh, listenership of this podcast. We have many different means, but word of mouth is very important. Thanks for helping us out. Thanks for listening. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is the Interchange Weekly Conversations on the Global Energy Transformation from Green Tech Media. Mm-hmm.